Galatians chapter 2. Am I on? Can you hear me? For some reason, I can't hear it. You know, we live in a very selfish age, don't we? Pragmatism. Does it work? Is really the question that most people ask. Is it relevant? I hear that more often. Is it relevant? We're a me-centered generation. The, the question that usually is asked is, will this thing, whatever I'm doing, make me live better, make me more fulfilled, make me happier? And unfortunately, that sometimes, no, I shouldn't say sometimes, that has often crept into the church. In fact, if you go to, well, don't go there, stay in Galatians, but Revelation chapter 3, if you think about the Laodicean church, where Christ says, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And I think he's characterizing this age when he's saying that. And then he tells him, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in fire that you may be rich in white garments that you may be clothed and, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. You know, they thought they were wealthy. They thought that they had it together. And if there was any characteristic of the American church, we have all the things, but it seems like we don't have the power much of that is because we've bought into this whole selfish age that really Christ didn't come... I mean, Christ came to make me happy. That's prosperity theology. If, if you ever tu- tune in to Joel Olstein, he's probably the best portrayer of prosperity theology today. In other words, Jesus Christ is a cosmic genie. And if you act nice and do the right things, he's going to pour out all the goodies. He'll give you all the things that will make your life happy. And in some respects, religion and, again, Christianity has become like more or less an ethic. You learn these certain things to get through the life, to make yourself the happiest to the end. Well, sure, there's heaven, but it's the here and now. Getting people to do the right thing. One man said this, We reduce Christianity to good advice. Now think about this. We reduce it to good advice. And it blends in perfectly with the culture of life coaching. It might seem relevant, but it is actually lost in the marketplace of moral, moralistic therapies. In other words, Christianity is just on the shelf and we're just another type of way to make your life better, self-help. When we pitch Christianity as the best method of personal improvement complete with testimonies about how much better we are ever since we surrendered all to Christ, non-Christians can legitimately demand of us, well, what right do you have to say that yours is the only source of happiness, meaning, exciting experiences, and moral betterment? And that's what they do, by the way. I mean, I'll even hear Christians say something like this, well, you know, but he's... I mean, uh, he's not saved, but man, he's got such a great marriage and his kids are turning out so well. And do you see what I, what's happening? It's almost like we buy into this, well, Christianity is nothing more than another self-help. He goes on, he says, Jesus is clearly not the only effective way to a better life. Now that almost sounds heretical. Or to being a better me. One can lose weight, stop smoking, improve one's marriage, and become a nicer person without Jesus. I don't know if we always think that way, though. It's amazing to me how many self-help Christian literature there is out there. It's almost like if it's Christian, it's the best. Now, I will say this, that without Jesus Christ, you cannot have a God-glorifying marriage or a God-glorifying parenting. But you can't put it out like Jesus is the better way because there's people out there that are pagans. They're happy pagans. And they're saying, listen, I don't need you. I don't need what you're offering. I don't need your ethic and I don't need your teaching because I'm perfectly happy. And sometimes I think we almost look back and say, I can't believe you just said that. Don't you understand that Jesus is the one that makes us happy? Wait a second, that's that's not why Christ came to this earth. 
That's actually buying into a prosperity theology even though you may not preach it. I like what C.S. Lewis said. He said, I haven't always been a Christian. I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel better and more comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. That's truth. See, we live in a very, at least up to this point, a wealthy, prosperous society, and and it is carried over into the church. And sometimes you see these churches and ours, and it's almost like, oh, well, look at all they have. That's not why Christ came. Actually, in the New Testament and throughout most of history and even throughout most of this world, if you're a Christian, it's been given to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for His namesake. Jesus Christ came to this earth to not offer you the goodies. He came to solve man's greatest spiritual dilemma. And that is, how can I, how can you stand before the Holy God? How can you stand before Him righteously? That's why He came. We have to be very careful because I think we slip into prosperity theology and we don't even realize it. We'll look at someone else and say, they're preaching it, but the words we use... Christians can have fun. What does that mean? I hear that all the time. Christians, well, we want to prove to the world that Christians can have fun. Listen, when you're being burned alive at the stake, that's not fun. When you're being run out of the country like India was in Orissa, and they're still without homes and still without pastors and still without churches, that's not fun. You see how that's a prosperity theology statement? Christians can have fun. What does that have to do with anything? It has nothing to do with anything. The reality is, well, sure we can have fun, but that's not the point. The point is, Jesus Christ came to offer salvation to those who couldn't earn it. In other words, how can a guilty, condemned sinner be made righteous and thereby acceptable to God? And the answer is justification. That's how God makes us righteous. So again, Galatians chapter 2. Let me read verses 15 to 21. It says this, We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. By the way, let me, let me just back up a little bit. Paul, in the first two chapters of Galatians, are given his, is given his personal testimony. He's establishing the fact that he's an apostle before God, by God, and his message is from God. And he even wanted to show how strong his apostleship was. By look at verse 11, he said, I was even able to confront Peter, the greatest of all apostles, supposedly in the Judaizer's mind. So he's like saying, listen, I even confronted Peter. And now this is actually what he's talking... He, he's actually... This is what he's telling Peter. This, this message today is what he has told Peter. Because he says, verse 14, I was straight... Uh, I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature are not sinners of the Gentiles. What do you mean by sinners of the Gentiles? He's saying... The Jews were under the law. The Gentiles didn't even have the law. They were outside of the law. They were sinners, pure sinners, because they didn't even know what the truth was. Last week we looked at this verse, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. There, can you see that word justified, justified, justified? But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. In fact, I think verse 21 is the the key verse of the entire epistle. It's about grace, and if anything came through the law, Christ died in vain. And really, with the end of chapter 2, he he ends his personal uh, note and then starts his theological note in chapter 3. 
But justification, that's why Christ came. He didn't come to be our genie. He didn't, come, he didn't come so he could give us all the goodies on this side. Throughout history, throughout Christian, Christian history, it was the Christians who were thought of as the dregs of society. They were the hunted. They were the tortured. They were the hurt. This little bubble that we're living in, at least for the moment, is so out of characteristic of what true Christianity has had to survive. And so Christ came to rescue a people for himself. And it's justification. Well, let's get into the text. The first is justification stated. And we looked at it last week, but I need to review because I want you to get it. Justification, when he says in verse 16, justified three times, this is what he's saying. Justification, justification means that God dropped his verdict of condemnation against us. He acquitted us. He dropped the condemnation and declared us to be righteous before the right because of the righteous and sacrifice righteousness and sacrifice of Christ. I just messed that up. Let me say that again. He dropped his verdict of condemnation and declared us to be righteous. Why? Because of the righteousness and of the sacrifice of Christ. It's like the judge declared righteous. That's why he came to this earth. To declare us righteous. Again, not to make us. And I mean that because, again, He is making us more and more righteous, but you don't have to be fully righteous to be justified. You're declared righteous. You're a sinner and saint at the same moment. And He breaks the verse down. I mean, Paul writes it. He looks at a general thought, the first part of verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. That's generally looking at all men, any man. There's no man out there that was justified by the law. They only are justified by faith. In other words, the law cannot justify anyone. But it's faith. And you say, well, what is faith? Faith, again, is not the source. (coughs) Faith is not the... uh, It's not through faith, it's the channel, okay? It's the channel, for by grace are you saved, excuse me, it's not by faith, it's through faith, it's the channel, that's all I'm trying to say, it's the channel. Some people say, well, I have faith, of course I'm saved, well, that makes it the source. Christ saves, the the faith is just the channel, it just gets the salvation to me. So faith is trust. Trusting in Christ, relying upon Him totally. That's what he says. Knowing that man is not justified by works but by, above the law, but by faith in Christ. When I have full trust in Christ, when a person drops to his knees, as it were, and says, I cannot do it. I cannot earn salvation. I cannot do enough to please God. In fact, my righteousness, Isaiah says, is as filthy rags. And that word filthy rags was used of, um, you know, if you've ever had a, a major cut and all the blood on the gauze, and then throw that gauze in the sun for about a couple, three days. And it's stinking putrid. And that's what Isaiah says. Your righteousness is a stinking putrid before God. But those who have faith in Christ on what He did on the cross, those He justifies because He imputes, God imputes the righteousness of Christ's life and His sacrifice to my account. I just love justification. It's... It's the, the whole key to the whole New Testament. And then finally, secondly, he, he, he looks at it personally. He says, uh, the second part of verse 16, even we have believed. We have believed. It's we. It's personal. In other words, I, what do you mean? It, it means that we personally have to commit to Christ. It's, it's not just like we have faith. It's personally committing to Jesus Christ, receiving His forgiveness, receiving what He did on the cross on my account. And then he ends by saying, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. That's universal. You can meet any person on the street and say, if you want salvation, it has to come through Christ, faith in Christ. So when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, God treats us as if we were as righteous as Jesus himself. God credits us with his righteousness which means imputes, it imputes us to our account, so that when Christ, when, when, what Jesus did through the cross and the empty tomb counts for us. 
I just love that. It's not earning. It's trusting. When we when he justifies a sinner, God declares that as far as he is concerned, the sinner is as righteous as his own son. You know that's how you stand before God. If you've received his son, you are as, as far as in his eyes, as far as before the judge, you are as righteous as his own son. That's why you can't, there's no condemnation in Christ. That's justification stated. Let's look at it, justification defended. And, and basically, that's verses 17 to 20. Now Paul moves and he's going to defend this. See, I mean, you think about all the religions. There's no religion that even comes close to that, right? There is no religion where God justifies the unrighteous. Every religion says this, you earn your way to heaven. You work your way to heaven. There are things that you have to do and then God maybe at some point will declare you in whatever sense right or justified before it. Paul knows that he's going to have objections. And he's going to answer these objections right here. And the, the, the key objection is this. Well, think about this. I mean, you're telling me this is what justification is, that you're declared righteous. You don't have to work for your salvation. What are people who are working for their salvation going to say? Well, that's really responsible. I mean, let's face it. It's when you have to work that keeps people in line. Isn't the doctrine of justification by faith irresponsible? I mean, doesn't it make people sloppy? Why are they going to want to give? Why are they going to want to love their children? I mean, you're really promoting, Paul, a doctrine that's really going to get people so they don't even care about the law. They don't even care about following Christ. I mean, they can do anything they want. They just get saved, and now they're on their way to heaven and live basically like hell on this earth. I mean, isn't that kind of irresponsible? That's what he's getting at, verse 17. Look at this. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, sinners... In verse 16, or 15, he referred to sinners as, as the Gentiles, those outside of the law. In other words, not law keepers. All right, so we're justified by, by faith, but we're found to be sinners outside of the law. We're not keeping the law. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? I mean, Paul, isn't that, aren't you basically saying that uh, Jesus Christ came so that you could just be sinning? Sure, you get saved, but then, you know, live however you want because it doesn't matter, you know, it's not because you're not adding anything to your salvation. By the way, there was like five different interpretations in this verse. That's probably one of the hardest verses of up to this point that we've had to go through. But I really believe that as it unfolds for the next few verses, he's, he's basically defending this charge that the Judaizers, those are the false teachers, had uh, on justification by faith. These Judaizers would say, well, man, Christianity is really irresponsible. You get saved and live as you please. And you say, whoa, 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 wait. Is Christ a minister of sin? Do you see how blasphemous that is? You mean you think that Christ saves you and then just kind of puts you on the path and do as you please? Certainly not. In fact, if you want a good uh, counter-reference to that, Romans 6. Romans 6, he uh, has to deal with a similar problem. Actually, go to verse 5, verse 20. Chapter 5, verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Why did God send the law to condemn us? Show us that we couldn't come to Christ, I mean, we couldn't earn our salvation. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through the righteous through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, so grace, grace reigns. That brings eternal life through Christ. Question on Paul's mind, other people's minds. Does that mean that you can live as you please? Verse chapter six, verse one. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Actually use the same exact emphatic word. Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? So Romans 6 is a uh, counter-reference to uh, Galatians. See, because this is what, in fact, I still hear it today. You'll hear it periodically. 
It's almost like we want to keep people under the law to a degree of their salvation only because it keeps them on the path. Are you saying that that salvation is a total gift from God, totally because of what Christ did on the cross, and by trusting Him fully, I can have total salvation and totally secure in Him? Yeah, that's what justification is. And now, isn't that going to make me live less than a Christian because I know that? I mean, do you really want to promote that? Again, the objection by the Judaizers is that to eliminate the law entirely, as Paul is doing, is to encourage godless living. The argument would go like this. Your doctrine of justification is dangerous. For by eliminating the law, you also eliminate a man's sense of moral responsibility. If a person can be accounted righteous simply by believing that Christ died for him, why then should he bother to keep the law? Or for that matter, why should he bother to live by any standard of morality? There is no need to be good. The result of this doc- of your doctrine is that men will believe in Christ, but thereafter do as they desire. Now, Paul's going to... By the way, do we sin? Do you constantly sin? Yes. Do you constantly repent? I trust you do. I hope you do. Again, I think, I, I think this is what was going on with the Judaizers. They didn't really understand justification. They almost thought of it as legal fiction. Fiction, false. Like, well, you know, you say you're justified, but really there's no change that takes place. Now Paul is going to tell you the change that takes place at the moment you believe. Okay? Actually, the whole thing has to do with, revolve around these three words. Or actually two, in Christ, united to Christ. That's, that's the whole concept that's being played out in the last part of Galatians 2. That we are, as Corinthians says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. By the way, he, he's saying that from past, present to future there. He is a new creation. He's not saying this. He will become a new creation. No, no, he says you are a new creation. From the point of, of, if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We're a new creation. Or as Martin Luther said, a Christian is not someone who has no sin or feels no sin. It's, that's not what a Christian is. Has no sin or feels no Christian, or sin. He is someone to whom, because of his faith in Christ, God does not impute his sin. <coughs> oh yeah, we are sinners and we feel our sin. But what makes us a Christian is because our sin has not been imputed to us. The righteousness of Christ has been. That's huge. So I think the legalizers, the Judaizers, had accused Paul of encouraging sin. But then he goes right back and he says, well really, it's not justification by faith that makes you want to sin. It's actually justification by the law. Look at verse 18. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, by the way, he's, he's now using the personal I, but he could also be looking at Peter because this is what Peter did. He built again those things which he destroyed. Now, the thing that he destroyed was this, that you could be saved by the law. Right? That's what the whole argument is. But now he's saying, listen, if you go back and you start building on something you have already destroyed, because in order to come to Christ, you have got to understand you cannot get there by works. But he said, listen, if I build again those things I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. The problem is not justification by faith, it's justification by works. Justification by the law, that's the problem. Trying to get, trying to get, make yourself right before... God with the Old Testament law, with laws. That's the problem, Peter. Remember, he's talking to Peter here. To think somehow that the law saves you is the true transgression. And remember, that's what Peter was doing. Because he knew the truth. He saw the vision. He knew that he was saved. He knew that Gentiles and Jews were together. He was eating with the Gentiles. This is the story and storyline we've already gone over. But now, that's what he destroyed. He destroyed the fact that works could save you. But then when the Jews came in from James, he started pulling away from the Gentiles. He was rebuilding what he had already destroyed. 
I think to myself, how many times do we do that in our life? We stand for a truth and we, and we destroy what we have built. Or we built what we have destroyed, however you want to say that. See, first he told, Peter had told the Gentiles saved by faith, and then he made them do works of the law as a test of his fellowship. I mean, Peter was doing this, and, and Paul very personally, <coughs> verse 18, he's not pointing to Peter and saying, Peter, if you built, again, those things which you destroyed, you make yourself a transgressor. He says it personally. Why? Because he's very gentle. Peter, uh, Paul is very gentle towards Peter. Come on, let's think about this. If you've already you know, said that you're saved by faith and not by works, why are you rebuilding that old thing? That's what's going to destroy you. And, and, and if you think, Peter, that you can please God by just working, that's the greater transgression. Remember, the law does nothing more than show us our sin. So he's, I think he's answering this question. I think it's a question that needs to be answered even today. You know, justification, isn't that irresponsible? I mean, let's face it, you get saved. I mean, don't you want to put some limitations, some things in the person's life to get them scared before God so they walk the path of righteousness? I mean, do you really think that justification alone is going to create the transformation? Well, he, he's, he switches a little bit of gears and he says, well, let me show you two sides now to answer this. I'm, I'm still trying to answer. I'm saying I'm trying to answer this question of is it irresponsible? I think Paul says this. Let's look at the law first and then let's look at your new life in Christ. And I think between the two of those, Peter, you're going to have an answer of why justification is enough to create transformation in the life. Question number two, what is our relationship to the law? For, now again, Paul uses the I, not you, Peter, I. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I, through the law, died to the law that I might be able to live to God. <coughs> what does it mean, <coughs> died, uh, what does it mean through the law? Again, what does the law do? I through the law. The law can't bring life. Uh, I hesitate to go too much into Galatians farther simply because we're going to be there. We're going to see all this again. The law cannot bring life. By the works of the law, no man shall be justified, Romans says. The law cannot bring life. It can only bring death. It only can condemn. But the idea is this. When, when a man becomes hopeless with the law, in other words, I understand I can't, I can't, all my righteousnesses are filthy rags. I, I can't do it. Then that man turns to God. So, so first thing Paul says is, listen, I, through the law, hey, I've gone through the law. I, I've, I've tried that, that, that route. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Blame was before the law. Yeah, I, I went through the law. In fact, chapter 3, verse 24 says the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law, all that the law did was a tutor. I think that's what he means by through. The law brought us to Christ through. Again, the law pointed us in the right direction because the law said you're condemned. The law says, and you're not going to be able to do it. You're not going to be able to earn your salvation. Uh, you know, as a person, you start, okay, so if I can't keep the law, Christ. That's what through the law means. It condemns us, but it points us to Christ. Well, let's look at the second question, sub-question. What did die to the law mean then? Paul's saying this, he is no longer under its power. Calvin said, to die to the law is to renounce it and to be freed from its dominion so that we have no confidence in it and it does not hold us captive under the yoke of slavery. So when he says that he died, it means that somehow with Paul, he saw Christ and the law now has no effect in his life. And I think the third... When you put this together, this is what's happening. Well, then how can someone die to the law through the law? So the law condemns, the law points, 
And now he's saying, listen, on the other side, after justification, I am dead to the law. Again, once the law had exacted its punishment, or exacted its death penalty, as you were, as it was, there was nothing else it could do. A man can be executed only once, right? Is that true? He can only be executed once. And once he has been executed, the law has no further claim on him. The penalty of the law, according to Romans 6.23, oh, I just lost it. Help me out here. Uh, The wages of sin, death. The wages of sin. That's the penalty. The wages of sin is death. Eternal death. And this penalty of the law has been carried out. Now, this is how. The law's demand of death was satisfied in the death of Christ. It was the law that put Christ to death on the cross. And when Christ died, Paul died too. At least as far as the law was concerned. He died to the law in the death of of a substitute, Jesus Christ. So he says, listen, I'm dead to the law because now that I'm in Christ, that law, the fury of God against sinners was paid for on the cross. And because Christ died and fulfilled the law and paid the death penalty for the law and I'm in Christ I'm dead to the law the law cannot it's double, double jeopardy do you know what that double jeopardy it means that if, if you've been found convicted on a certain set of uh, things you can be punished once you can't be punished twice on the same set of uh, uh, facts you can't be punished twice and see my sin had to be punished but if my sin was punished on the cross, and I'm in Christ, and I was spiritually there, then the, that sin cannot be, I can't be punished for that same sin because it was already punished once by Christ. Can't do it. So the result is, look at verse 19, the last part of it, that I might live to God. See, he, he had to get the law, because everyone's going to have questions about the law. Well, aren't you under the law? Don't you have, no, no. Through the law, I, be, I saw I was a sinner, pointed me to Christ, and I'm not under the law any longer because I was spiritually there with Christ, and He paid the penalty for every one of my sins, every one of my actions, every one of my thoughts, my motivations, the words I said. You're such a pathetic person, John Prince, but the Christ died for all that. Well, let's look at the question number three then. If we've already, you know, Paul's answered the, the question of the law, because that's huge. Now let's look at our own new life in Christ. What is our new life like? Our new life. It's interesting. Look at verse, or the last part of verse 19, he, he uses the word live, live to God. I've been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God. Who love me? I mean, it's all about life, and these, this verse is all about life. What's my new life like? In other words, after justification by faith, I'm in Christ. What is it like? Paul says, listen, if you really understand what has happened at justification, you won't ask the question whether you could continue on sin. There's, there's three things that he wants to point out, and they just break down off the verse. First of all, again, I am united with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. All right? I am united at justification. The moment I get saved, I've been united with Christ. That word uh, have been is in the perfect tense. It reaches back into history. <laughs> history. This is what I mean by this. Uh, on Monday, Thursday, I asked the question, what was nailed to the cross of Christ? And we found out four things were nailed to the cross. Jesus Christ himself was nailed to the cross. The announcement ahead, uh, over his head was nailed to the cross. Our sins were nailed to the cross, but this is the surprising thing. We, in a spiritual sense, were nailed to the cross. That's what, he, that's what he's getting at when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's perfect. It's past. It, it goes all the way back. The idea is this. It refers to something that is truly has happened in the past, once for all, not needing to be repeated, but whose influence continues to the present. It's as if, and I, by the way, I'm not saying you were nailed to the cross. 
It's how God looks at you. It's as if you were nailed to the cross when Christ died. As if. Now, you've got to get that. So by faith, you are... This is what Luther said. By faith, you are so cemented to Christ that he and you are as one person, which cannot be separated, but remains attached to him forever. In Christ means I am so, it's like cemented to Christ. That's why we should be willing to worship him. That's why we should be willing to follow him, because we are cemented to him in, in a spiritual relationship. He died, we died with him. Buried, buried. Rose again, ascended to heaven. We're spiritually with him. Our glorification is so secure that Paul puts in the past tense in Romans 8 because it's like it's already been done. There's nothing else left. I mean, there, it's left to be done, but it is so secure. Paul's, or God says, it's like past tense. It's done. You're, if you're in Christ, you're glorified. You're not glorified. You're all sinners. But you will be glorified, and it is that sure. That's what it means to be in Christ. It means to be so united to Him that all the experiences of Christ becomes a Christian's experience. Thus, His death for sin was the believer's death. His resurrection, the believer's resurrection. His ascension, the believer's ascension. So that the believer is again, in one sense, seated with Christ in the heavenlies, even right now. Do you feel like you're seated in the heavenlies? We have so much here on this earth, so many frustrations, hurts, you know, everything just drains us. Jesus didn't come to become our genie. He said, listen, but you're in me. And Paul says, listen, you are, I've been crucified with Christ. Do you think one who is crucified is just going to live however he wants? That's his, in other words, Christ's spiritual reality becomes our spiritual reality. His story becomes our story. And as far as God is concerned, we were really and truly nailed to the cross with Christ. Not that we were, but it's as if we were. It was on the cross that the law carried out its death penalty against us. Therefore, as far as the law is concerned, we're now dead. I don't, yeah, dead to the law. That's why Paul said, you know, we're not under the law. We're dead to the law. It doesn't mean that we don't keep standards. It just means that as far as the law's condemnation of us, it can't touch us. It can't. It can't strike out at two people for the same sin. Yes, I sinned, but Christ took my sin. That's why in Romans 6 it says, if you've been united together in the likeness of his death, that's also in the perfect tense, we shall be future tense united to, with him in the, his resurrection and his ascension and everything. Everything that he is, we are. My life, your life, if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, is so united to Christ that as God looks at you, He sees Christ. That's what we mean by that. I know this is theology, but I'll tell you what, if this theology hits your heart, it will change you. It will make you more thankful for Jesus Christ than you've ever been because it's like, Lord, you've paid. I see how you've paid my sin. How about number two off of Galatians 2.20? The second part. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So the second thing is, I no longer have a life of my own. That's the second major point to, to uh, go against the, what the Judaizers were saying, what's well, irresponsible, justification by faith. They're going like the, to live like the devil. Paul says, don't you understand that I, it's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. In other words, the only life I have is the life that God gives me through Christ by the Holy Spirit. He's is, is His life being lived out through you? It's like Colossians 4 says, when Christ who is our life, our life, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no life outside of Christ. Oh, you have physical life, but I'm saying spiritual life. Life, true life is found in Christ. It's the opposite of what the world... The world is very self-centered. In fact, the world says it's all about me. It's all about what I want. In fact, Shirley MacLaine... I don't know. If she, is she still around? This is what she wrote. Probably one of the best characteristics of the selfish life. Quote, The most pleasurable journey you take is through yourself. The only sustaining love and involvement is, your, is with yourself. When you t look back on your life and try to figure out where you've been and where you are going, 
when you look at your work and your love affairs and your marriages, marriages, she put marriage, and your children and your pain and your happiness, when you examine all that closely, what you really find out is that the only person you really go to bed with is yourself. The only person you really dress is yourself. The only thing that you have is working to the consummation of your own identity. I mean, isn't that self-centered? It's all about me. Me, 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 me. Just give me. I need, I need, I need. We live in a very selfish age. Obsessed. In fact, you know, if you go in a self-help, uh, the, the uh, bookstore, you know, self-esteem, self-improvement, self-fulfillment, self-indulgence, self-reliance, self-help, self-self... It, and, and then Christians start talking about self-esteem. I'm, I don't have time to defend it at the moment, but self-esteem is nothing than veiled pride. Be careful how you use that word. You know what? Our image, our self-image is wrapped up in Christ. That's what Paul is saying right there. If you really want a good, healthy image, it's seeing yourself in Christ. It's no longer the who I, I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. Christ lives in me. That's the self-esteem, if you want to say it. Because, a Christian, because becoming a Christian means that we find our true identity. And it's not about me. It's about Christ. It's selfless, not selfish. Find your identity in Christ. Don't find it in your work, your family, your children, whatever. They're great. I love my kids, love my wife, love my work. I love all those things. And to a degree, yes, I want to be a, a pastor that ends well. Yes. But find your identity because you know what? God may take some of those things away from me. You know, I love my wife, but she may not be there forever. I, I might die last. We always say, I'm going to die first. You, you know, how are you going to carry on? Well, you know, it might be reverse order. My children, my work, my friends, my church. What, well, all those things. Find your identity in Jesus Christ. That's huge. Our world is looking, looking, and, and they answer it like Shirley MacLaine. Well, it's all about me anyways. Boy, you talk about a roller coaster when it's all about you. But do you think about the stability when it's all about Christ? Because then no matter if you have hardship and, and hurts in your life, uh, if you have letdowns and dis, uh, disappointments, it's all about Christ. It's all about His um, plan being fulfilled in your life. So if you really understand it's not my life, it's Christ's life, how could I live? How could I live for myself? And then thirdly, I live in the flesh by faith. And that the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see the emphasis there? I live by faith in that he loved me and he gave himself for me. That's a wonderful truth that because he loved me so much, why would I ever veer from his path? So again, union with Christ answers the question, if God justifies bad people, why be good? The reason the doctrine of justification does not promote sin is that justifying faith is, one, what gets us into Christ. That's what we saw in the first point. And, we were, and when we are in Christ, we become new people. That's the second point. His life is in us. And we are not simply justified by faith, we also live by faith. See, it's not just, we live by faith every moment. The just shall live by faith, that's what Romans says. By faith we are crucified, excuse me, by faith we are in the crucified Christ. By that same faith, Christ lives in us. And since we live in Christ, we no longer live in sin. We live in Christ, by Christ, through Christ, for God's glory. Everything's changed. I was there, there was no sin has been paid for. I walk with Christ because His life is in me. And every time, you notice this? That, I, that you can't live like you used to? And you start down that path and you want to get a little bit bitter and you just, boy, that was a really good anger session I had with my spouse. But then God, hello, now you need to go confess it to him, her. You need to make things right. You need to confess it to me. Oh, I just, that felt so good though. Well, but you need to, because his life is in you. Oh, no, I, I can sin and I don't even get convicted. You know what you call that? An unbeliever. Right? Isn't that true? That's an unbeliever. That's not the fruit of the Spirit. 
And so he ends verse 21, and now he's basically, you know, bringing it all down and just, and many times we jump over verse 21 because verse 20, 20 is so, and I memorized that years ago. But 21, I think, is the key. I do not set aside the grace of God. This is, by the way, this is justification's conclusion. I know it doesn't sound right, but that's really what he's doing. He's concluding the whole thing. He's saying this is, this is the conclusion of the whole matter. I do not set aside the grace of God. If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Isn't that a horrific thought? Christ died in vain. He came to this earth, became incarnate, went through all life to the cross, died in vain? No way. But if a person looks at the law, then he's not looking at Christ. And if you don't believe that everything is on Christ and nothing is in the law, you have said that Christ died in vain. It can't be a little bit of both. You cannot do both. You cannot combine merit and grace. If justification, even the slightest measure, is through human merit, then Christ died in vain. We have trampled on the blood of Christ. We have mocked his sacrifice. We have nulled its effect. So that's why Paul ends. No, I can't do it. And then he moves from there into into an actual theology. You might say, well, you've been teaching me theology. Well, now he's, he's going to be answering some other arguments. But I think he had to get the first argument out of the way, that justification by faith is irresponsible. It doesn't make the person have true new life. No, no, it does. Because Christ's life is in him. Martin Luther said this, Before my conversion, had you knocked at the door of my heart and asked who lives there, I would have said, Martin Luther lives here. Had you come to see me, you would have found a monk with a head shaved and sleeping in a hair shirt. Boy, that would have been uncomfortable. But now if you knock at the door of my heart and ask who lives here, I will reply, Martin Luther no longer lives here. Jesus the Lord now lives here. Jesus lives here. Is that how it is in your life? Is Jesus Christ living in your heart? You know, I, I go back to the Laodicean church. Because here's Christ looking at the the last of the churches and he's saying this. And I think this is not only a specific church and also specifies certain churches of all ages, but I also think this is kind of like the church of our age. This is a church who says, I am wealthy. I have need of nothing. And yet he says, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. I wonder if that's you. Yeah, I run through life, but yeah, I don't spend much time praying and I'm not really even convicted. I don't even know what you're talking about. What does he say? I counsel you, buy from me gold refined in fire. Then you'll be rich. White garments that you may be clothed. I'll take care of your nakedness. I will put eye salve on your eyes so that you can really see. And I would apply this two ways. You may be here and you have never received Christ. I would say... Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust totally in His sacrifice. Nothing of your good works because you have none. And He will save you. But the other side is this. We can walk down the path of Christianity being very, very sloppy, forgetting that it's new life. And sometimes we ourselves are wretched and poor, uh, poor and blind. We have lost our way and we just keep going down almost like a blind person trying to find it without seeing. And Jesus would say this. He says it. He says, listen, for those who I love, verse 19, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Don't be lukewarm. That's the lukewarm church. Lukewarm is this. I don't reject Christ, but I'm not fervently passionate to serve Christ either. I'm just in that lukewarm, putrid, you know, spit up. Christ says, you know, I'd like to just spew you out of my mouth. If you say you're a believer, then walk with me because I am God and you are not. You are my slave and I am your master. That's what he would say. And and notice what he says, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, dine with him, and he with me. That's a sign of fellowship. Are you in fellowship with the Lord? Or if you're walking your own path, maybe you're walking your own path because you misunderstood justification by faith. Well, I got saved. He doesn't care. 
wait a second. You have new life. And you should be walking by faith. And yes, He does care because He wants to grow you in holiness. But not to earn your salvation because you are saved. So I ask, is God knocking on your heart? And are there things in your life that you have not been willing to change and you have not been willing to repent of and you have not confessed to Him because I'm justified by faith? God is saying, listen, I want to come in and sup with you. I want to have fellowship with you. You sense that you're having a hard life? You're trying to do it on your own? Fall down before me. Repent of your sins. If, I, if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you, cleanse you from all unrighteousness, right? I would encourage you to do that. Never think justification by faith is irresponsible living because it should drive us to holiness way beyond the, what the law could ever do because of our gratefulness and thankfulness to Him. As Paul said, why would I want to surrender? Like Galatians said, he loved me and gave himself for me. If you're a believer, you can put your name. He loved John Prince and gave himself for John Prince. I can now serve him out of faith, not fear. Not fear. It's not what if. I'm totally secure. But when you start understanding He loved you and He gave Himself for you, Lord, I want to serve you. I want to surrender. Lord, I live a sloppy life. I'm saying that personally. At times I live a very sloppy... Lord, I want to walk with you because you love me and you gave yourself for me. All that garbage that still ends up in my life at times. You even sacrifice yourself for that. Lord, you love me. You gave... I want to serve you. Is that your heart attitude? I trust it is. Let's pray. Father, again, forgive us for those times when we allow prosperity theology to creep in. When we're looking to you just for the goodies. We don't like even the prospect of suffering or hardships or hurts or disappointments. And yet, as you want to grow us, you say that uh, trials help us to become patient and endure and mature. Lord, I pray that we get on the same page as that you've already put us on. Lord, help us to understand that you are seeking to make us become more like the Lord Jesus. So Lord, whatever comes into our life, help us to see it through the eyes of faith. To always remember that because of love, Christ came and died for us. I pray now that we would be truly surrendered. That we will look at you as Lord and that we are your servants, that you are the master and we are simply your slaves. Lord, I pray that we would be pleasing to you so that we might honor and glorify you. In Christ's name, amen.